0: So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Bow together as we pray. Our Father, we know and believe that when your word is rightly preached, your Your voice is truly heard. It is our desire that that might be the case here this morning, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what is in your word. May we walk away from here with a greater appreciation for Christ and what he has done for us, and even in our hearts. May you be glorified here amongst your people. Grant us illumination, we pray, in your word. In Christ's name, amen. There are two verses in the Gospels which... Um, I think kind of parallel this idea of Jesus being a good shepherd. Uh, There are two verses that are kind of interesting to notice uh, what is in them and the context in which they're given. And I'm going to read them to you. The first is found in Matthew 9, verse 36, where Matthew writes, Seeing the people, he, that is Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And the second one is Mark 6, verse 34. Mark writes, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. There's two, I think, notable things in those verses. The first is the condition in which Jesus found the people when He came here. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now you would think that of all the nations on the face of the earth, the nation of Israel and Jewish people would have been people who were sheep with a shepherd. They had elders plenty. They had Pharisees plenty. They had religious leaders plenty. They had spiritual experts in the law, scribes and Sadducees, all aplenty. They had almost more leaders than there were people. They had plenty of leaders, but they were still sheep without a shepherd. Because those unrighteous Pharisees never taught the people, never loved the people, never shepherded the people, never guarded them, never protected them, never walked with them in the paths of righteousness. And so the people, even though they had shepherds, they were still without shepherds. You see the double meaning there? They had spiritual shepherds, but they didn't really have spiritual shepherds. Because the spiritual shepherds did not do any of the work of spiritual shepherding. And in Mark, and this is the second thing to notice, in Mark it's interesting to notice the response of Jesus to the condition of the people. They were sheep without a shepherd, and Mark says, so Jesus began to teach them many things. He felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. This was the heart of Jesus. He looked at the people and he realized, these people have no shepherd. And so what did Jesus do? Start to feed, their, feed the hungry? Clothe the poor? Create a welfare state? Did he do any of that? You know what he did? He began to teach them, because that's what the heart of a shepherd does. Shepherds teach God's people. The primary function of a shepherd is to teach the people of God and to feed not only himself through the constant study of Scripture, but to feed other people through Scripture as well. That's not the only function of a shepherd, but it is the primary function of a shepherd, to teach and to preach and to feed people God's Word. So when Jesus saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, his heart was moved with compassion, and he started teaching them, because that's what they hungered for, that's what they needed being sheep without a shepherd, they lacked true spiritual teaching. And so Jesus taught them. In fact, Jesus was to the people everything that the Pharisees were not. The Pharisees were not teachers. They did not walk in righteousness. They did not love the people. They oppressed the people. And Jesus was the polar opposite of all of that. He was to the people everything that the Pharisees were not. And one of the things we see in John chapter 10 is the contrast between Jesus and these thieves and robbers. The thieves and robbers are the Pharisees. So you have the false shepherds of the nation of Israel, like those described in Ezekiel chapter 34. You have that contrasted with Jesus in John 10. And this whole discourse really revolves around three contrasts. First is the contrast dealing with ownership, which we looked at in verses 1 through 5. Jesus is the true owner of the sheep. Having had the sheep given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world, he owns them. He has a rightful claim to them. He doesn't have to climb up over the wall to get into the sheepfold. He just stands outside. He calls them to him because they belong to him. And they have always belonged to him because the Father gave them to him. The, the wolves and the, sorry, the, the thieves and the robbers on the other hand are not legitimate owners of the sheep. The only way they have access to the sheep is if they come at it through some illegitimate means. The second contrast, and that's in verses 6 through 10, is the contrast of what the shepherd, a true shepherd provides for the sheep. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but the good shepherd gave his life for the sheep and comes to give salvation and sustenance and abundant life. And we're going to return to this in just a second. The third contrast is verses 11 through 18, and that is what the shepherd sacrifices for the sheep. A hireling and a false shepherd does not sacrifice anything for the sheep. He's not interested in serving the sheep. He's not interested in giving anything up for the sheep. He's not interested in doing anything to the sheep except taking what does not belong to him. The good shepherd, on the other hand, lays down his life for the sheep and gives his life in the place of the sheep. So the sheep, rather than dying, receive life because of what the shepherd did. Now we got into the second of these contrasts, and that is the contrast having to do with what the good shepherd provides for his sheep. And last week we looked at two things that the good shepherd, as the door, provides for his sheep. Salvation and sustenance. They go in to have salvation and those who will not go in through the door remain outside the fold of God without salvation because there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ. And second, he provides sustenance. Not only do they come in through him for salvation to the kingdom of God, and to the fold of God, they go out through him to daily pasture and to feed. So the shepherd who provides salvation also provides through himself sustenance and satisfaction for his people. Now today we are looking at the third thing that Jesus provides for his sheep in verses 8 and 10 of John 10, and that is the abundant life, an abundant life. You all up to speed? Verse 8. Now there's a reason why we are combining verse 8 with verse 10. And it is because in both verses we have a description there of the thieves and the robbers. So that's why we're combining those together. Who are the thieves and the robbers? The thieves and the robbers, as I already mentioned, we saw in verse 1, Jesus is repeating something. The thieves and the robbers are the Pharisees, the false shepherds of the nation of Israel. You could have stood up in a synagogue and read Ezekiel 34 and it would have been just as relevant in the day of Jesus as it was when Ezekiel wrote it. Because the Pharisees were everything that was described in Ezekiel 34. They exploited the people. They took from the people. They destroyed the people. They oppressed the people. They dominated the people. And they held them down. And they robbed from them and sapped from them their spiritual life through their self-righteous works-based salvation system. They did everything that was described in Ezekiel 34. Just as relevant in Jesus' day as when Ezekiel penned it. It's almost as if nothing had changed. And the more things change, the more they what? Stay the same. Right, so Ezekiel 34 was a description of the Pharisees. Now, not originally, obviously, when when Ezekiel wrote it. But if you wanted a description of what it was like to watch a Pharisee, Ezekiel 34 was it. They were the thieves and the robbers. They are the thieves and the robbers described in verse 1. They are the thieves and the robbers described in verse 8 and in verse 10. And it is to them that Jesus is addressing this Good Shepherd discourse. Now, what was it that the Pharisees did? Let's read verse 8 and 10 together. We covered verse 9 last week. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. That reference to the sheep not hearing them is a repeat of the idea of verse 5. The sheep do not go after the voice of strangers. The Pharisees were thieves and robbers. Why did Jesus not find Peter and James and John and Matthew following after the Pharisees as their disciples? Why is that? It didn't have anything to do with the Pharisees. These men weren't interested in that. These men recognized the voice of the true shepherd when the true shepherd came and called them by name. They did not go after the Pharisees. So the thieves and the robbers, his sheep do not follow after the thieves and the robbers. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now here we are going to see what the thieves and the robbers do. In verse 10, or verse 8, I should say, Jesus says something that is a bit perplexing. It's kind of a curious statement and it presents us with an interpretive challenge. Look at verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, that's a bit of a perplexing statement for this reason. Is Jesus intending with that statement to say that all of the spiritual leaders, all of them without exception, who came before him were thieves and robbers who exploited the flock? Is that what Jesus was saying? It seems almost problematic in its inclusiveness, as if Jesus is saying every spiritual leader that the nation has had prior to me has been a thief and a robber. Is that what Jesus was saying? There was actually in the first century, after the time of Christ, in the first century there was a group that uh, kind of came to prominence called the Gnostics. They were known as the Gnostics. And there was one small Gnostic sect who used this verse to try and show that Jesus was condemning all the spiritual leaders that the nation of Israel had ever had. And they used it to discredit the writings of the entire Old Testament because all they wanted to do was recognize the writings of the New Testament. So they used chapter uh, 10, verse 8 to discredit all the spiritual leaders of Israel's past and the God who spoke through the Old Testament, and to reject all the Old Testament books, because they said, here Jesus is saying, everybody who came before Him, that would be Moses, and Noah, and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and all of them, a whole lot of them, all of them were corrupt. And this is Jesus condemning them. Is that what Jesus was saying? The term before can be taken in a number of facts, four different ways, but I'll just give you two of them. The term before can be taken in reference to before in time, like this event happened before this event. Or one person came in the door before another person came in the door. In reference to time. The word can also be used in reference to a place of honor or dignity. So that one person, though coming sometime after somebody else, might be before that person in terms of honor or dignity. Let me give you an example. Who came first, John the Baptist or Jesus? You know your Bible, you know John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. So he came first in time. He was before Jesus in time. But... Who comes first in terms of honor and dignity and royalty and majesty? Who comes first between John the Baptist and Jesus? In that case, we would say that Jesus is before John the Baptist. That is the sense in which Jesus seems to be using the term before here. He is not saying that everybody who came prior to him in terms of time was a thief and a robber. But rather in the context, Jesus is saying there are spiritual shepherds who place themselves before me. They do not come through the door. They will not honor me. They climb up over a wall. They refuse to give to me the honor and dignity that I am due. And everybody who places themselves or comes ahead of me is a thief and a robber. In other words, what he is saying is, there is no one before me in terms of dignity and majesty and royalty and to whom honor is due. And so anybody who comes into the flock, who places themselves ahead of Christ, before Him, in terms of honor or dignity, and wants to take glory from Him and does not come through Him and to Him and by Him and for Him with an emphasis and an eye upon Him, anybody who does that and places themselves before Him is a thief and a robber. Here is a distinguishing mark of a thief and a robber. It is somebody who comes into the church in any position of teaching or power or influence and wants to veil Christ to make themselves great. That is the mark of the thief and robber. And that is, I believe, exactly what Jesus is saying. It fits the context. All who come placing themselves or setting themselves or being set before me in terms of honor are thieves and robbers. Now, do thieves and robbers know they're thieves and robbers? Do you think false teachers know that they're false teachers? Do you think the false teachers wake up every morning and wring their hands and say, how am I going to deceive people today? How am I going to do this? I want to lead people to eternal damnation. How will I accomplish that task today? Do you think thieves and robbers do that? Maybe some of them do, but I don't think all of them do. I don't think the majority of them do. I think majority of thieves and robbers are just like the people described in Matthew chapter seven. Lord, Lord, did we not did we not do this and say this and do this in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. The majority of thieves and robbers have no idea but that they're thieves and robbers. But they are, because they place themselves ahead of and before Christ. So what is it that they do? Verse ten. Verse 10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Three things. They're not just synonyms for one action or one type of person. They're not just three words that Jesus sort of throws in there that all sort of mean the same thing. They are different. They are distinct. They're very vivid descriptions. And I'm going to take each one separately. A thief comes to steal. The word is klepto in the Greek. Sound familiar? It does, right. You can think of English words that have similar or the same meaning that we have borrowed from that. The word is klepto, and it has, to, it, it, it can mean like concealing something, putting something in your pocket, putting something in your coat to conceal it. It's to use subterfuge, deception, sleight of hand, trickery, uh, be, be, bewitchment or bewilderment in order to, to take something from somebody that does not belong to you. Sometimes the word was used to describe the act of taking something by violence, but most of the time it had to do with deception and subterfuge and bewitching somebody. Um, concealing something. This is what false teachers do. They conceal their true motives. They conceal what they are really after. And they hide what they are really after behind robes of pious righteousness. And they make themselves sound really good. They make their doctrines sound really good. They make themselves look really good. And you think, wow, he's a pious and a holy individual. Wow, what a a great guy. And they conceal all of their wickedness and their corruption behind those masks for the sake of taking something that does not belong to them. What is it that they take Look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. What did they take from the people? Do you remember back in John 2, the whole temple worship had become corrupted to the point where all of the feasts and the festivities and everything that happened in the tabernacle or in the temple was all for the sake of making commerce out of the people. In fact, Jesus condemned them and said, you turned my father's house into a den of thieves because of what they did inside the temple. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They exploited people for their money and they used the religious structure of the nation in order to do that. They stole from the people. See, a thief and a robber, a false shepherd, never looks at the flock and says, here are a group of people that need to be shepherded. They need to be cared for. They need to be loved. They need to be led. They need to be taught. They need to be encouraged. They need to be grown up and matured in their faith. A false shepherd always looks at the flock and says, how can I exploit these people for my own good? How can I take from them what belongs to them? How can I get their money? How can I get their honor? How can I get their respect? How can I get them to love and adore me? How can I get them to give to me so that I can take from them what they have? A false shepherd always sees in his congregation a resource to be exploited. He never sees a people to be loved or a people to be shepherded. The second thing they do is not only kill, but, or steal, but they kill. This is an interesting word, particularly in this context, because the word was not used to describe somebody who murdered another individual. The word kill here was a word that was used to speak of slaughtering or sacrificing an animal in worship. And the word came to be used of sacrificing an animal for the sake of, of food from the animal. Because some of the sacrifices, the nation of Israel, involved offering an animal and then eating of that animal as part of the worship service. So if you went to the temple and you sacrificed or slaughtered an animal so that you could use it for food, you slaughtered it in worship to use it for food, that's what the word was used to describe. The act of sacrificing something else in order to use it for food. So a false shepherd, a thief, looks at the flock and he sees a flock of people and he's asking himself, how can these individuals lay down their lives for me? How can they sacrifice for my sake? That's how a false shepherd views the flock. The contrast is striking. And you just have to glance at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd what? Gives his life for the sheep. The false shepherd in verse 10 looks at the sheep and says, I want them to give their lives for me. I want them to serve me. I want them to honor me. I want them to worship and give glory to me and their things. I want those people to lay down their lives for my sake. The good shepherd looks at the people and says, I will lay down my life for their sake. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. The thieves and the robbers, the Pharisees, they saw in the people a resource to be exploited, to be taken from, to be stolen from, a resource of, of people who could lay down their lives for them. And the third thing that they do is destroy. And the word was used sometimes literally of destroying somebody in battle, in war, or destroying somebody in prison. Interestingly, that word destroy can also mean perish, and sometimes it is used figuratively in that sense. It's used figuratively in that sense three times in Luke chapter 15 to speak of the lost or the perishing coin, the lost or perishing sheep, and the lost or perishing prodigal son. It's the same word that's used there. It means to perish. This describes the spiritual effect of false teachers upon the people. A false teacher exploits the people, steals from them, kills them or sees them as an opportunity for them to sacrifice for him and he destroys them spiritually. False teaching and false teachers, thieves and robbers, wreak spiritual destruction upon God's people. That is what a false teacher does. A false teacher is not somebody who teaches something just slightly different than your pastor, the elders of this church, or the guy you listen to on the radio who is a good solid Bible teacher. It's not that a false teacher, like, say, Joel Osteen, teaches something just slightly different from them. It's that what he teaches destroys people spiritually. Destroys them. They perish because they follow the nonsense of fools in their teaching. It's not that this is a bit quirky, or it's just shallow, or it's just light. It is destructive. People perish because of these fools that Jesus is describing. If you followed the religious Pharisee to the grave, you would perish in your sin as a result of following them. That's the sense. They are destroyed. A false teacher steals, he kills, and spiritually he wreaks havoc and he destroys the people of God. That is why it is so serious. That is why this is something that should concern us so greatly. But the Good Shepherd, by contrast, does the exact opposite. He has come, not that he might kill, but that he might give life, that he might save them. He has come, not that he might take, but that he might himself might lay down his life for others. And he gives to his people salvation and sustenance. And the third thing in verse 10 of chapter 10 is the abundant life, an abundant life. Why has Jesus come? Here it is in his own words. I have come that my sheep, my people might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, I have a question that I need to ask you. And I wish that I could take five minutes just to sit down so that you can have five minutes to just ruminate upon this before we move on. Here's the question. And you probably never asked yourself this question in connection with this verse. Listen carefully. What is the abundant life? What is the abundant life described in John 10.10? What is life abundant? Now I'm pausing not because I forgot where my place is at, but I'm pausing because I want you to really think this through. How would you define or describe the abundant life? Let me ask you a few more questions. Is, Is this life a quality of life? or a quantity of life? Or is it both? Is is it possible to have life in salvation, but not have abundant life? Is it possible for a Christian to have life, but never really enter into the abundant life? What is this abundant life? What is it? How would you describe it? I'm going to give to you a a few, I think, false notions of abundant life, but before we do that, We just need to go back to the book of John, and I'm going to read you a few passages, and I'm going to ask you a few more questions. In the book of John, life is one of the key or major themes throughout the whole book, and we've seen this come up already so many times in the first nine and a half chapters of this book. We've seen the theme of life repeated over and over and over again. Let me give you some examples. Even in the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 4, where he describes Jesus as the Word, John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John chapter 5, to the unbelieving Pharisees, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. In John chapter 6, to the crowds, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 6:47. truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 7.37-38, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. And that theme of life goes all the way through the rest of the Gospel of John and culminates at the very end when John says, other things Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. It's life. Now I ask you this question. Is abundant life something other than what Jesus has already described for the last nine and a half chapters? That should be obvious, right? Or is the abundant life just one more way of describing eternal life? It is, friends, just one more way of describing eternal life. You see, when you say to, and you'll hear Christians speak this way. You listen to how Christians talk sometimes. Or listen to Christian radio, which I can't do because it drives me nuts. But you listen to Christian radio or Christian TV or listen to Christians talk, and this is what you will hear. I've been a Christian, man. I was a Christian for 15 years, but I just didn't have the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And I wanted to do this so that I could have abundant life. And now, now I've got the abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and that they have it more abundantly. Now i got abundant life. I was a Christian for so many years, I never had that abundant life don't you want to have the abundant life too i mean you got life now but wouldn't you like to have it really more abundantly and do you see what that does that puts that creates two classes of christianity see there's there's me who has the abundant life and then there's the rest of you who haven't quite entered into that abundant life yet and the implication is that there is some secret bit of knowledge or some secret practice or some secret experience that once I get that, then I can have the abundant life. Right now I just have life. But I'm really working and striving and trying to enter into the abundant life. If, you're, if that is your notion, or if, if in some way that is how you've thought of the abundant life, friends, you, it is, that is completely off the wall wrong, entirely. Now let me give you a few false notions of what, how t- Christians typically describe the abundant life. And I'll just go through these five. Now, in doing this, I pull these out because you, like me, may right now, like I once did, think the abundant life is one of the things that I'm about to describe to you. If that is the case, the reason I'm bringing this up is not to mock you or to jeer you or to make fun of you. I just want to expose this to the light of truth and take the mask of the facade off of the abundant life imposters so that you can see that these things which typically pass for an abundant life are not abundant life at all. In fact, they they pale in comparison to the real McCoy, the true deal. This is not abundant life, but here are five of them. Now, so if you, if you are one of these five, you're thinking one of these five, I'm not here to make fun of you, okay? I'm not judging. You. Actually, I am judging. These are wrong. So these are the five things, alright? These five things are wrong, and that is a judgment, and that's okay. The first one, some people just think that abundant life means a life of material prosperity. A life of material prosperity. Now, it's easy to identify who those might be. Guys like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen and others who promote the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that the abundant life is material prosperity. So if you're poor, or if you're not living above the standard of the national average, then you can't possibly have the abundant life. You need to tap into that. You need to pray. You need to do something in order to get my financial prosperity so that you can have the abundant life. If that is the case, if Jesus came, look, just plug that into verse 10 and ask yourself if that makes sense. I have come that they may have life, that they may have life that is characterized by material prosperity. that sound all right to you? If that's the case, then all of the apostles missed out on this. Because Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things so that I may know Christ. And I gladly suffer the loss of those things. If the abundant life is what Jesus came to give his people, he was a miserable failure. Because for 2,000 years, most of church history has been filled not with people who enjoyed financial prosperity. That that could only then be fulfilled in our day and age, right? When we live like kings have never lived. We're the ones who get the abundant life. But the church for 2,000 years hasn't. I don't think you would believe that nonsense, material prosperity. Second, some people think that the abundant life is a life of health and healing. Right? That the reason that Christ came was to give us the abundant life. And if you can just be physically fit and you can be healthy and you get on the Daniel diet, if you get on the Daniel diet, then you will be physically healthy and you will be fit and then you will have life abundant because then you'll know what it is to have energy and you'll know what it is to be healthy and to be fit. If Jesus came to make his people physically fit, that's the abundant life, he failed miserably. (laughs) He did. He failed miserably. Because riding my bike every morning and eating like a squirrel is what I have to do to maintain this girly's figure. And some of you are enjoying an abundance of some things, but it is not life. Really? Now you see what that does? If you're not physically fit, if you're not like Richard Simmons, you haven't enjoyed the abundant life. Would you really suggest to me that our friend Justin Peters, who was born with cerebral palsy and has never walked a day in his life, that, he, that the abundant life is excluded from him, that he's shut out of that, but a guy like Richard Simmons can enjoy the abundant life? Would you suggest that? It can't be physical fitness, can it? Third, some people would say the abundant of life is simply a life of happiness. I want to be happy, happy, happy. That's it. I want everything to go well for me. And, uh, and Jim, I've got peace at home. I've got peace in my family. I've got peace with my kids, peace with my wife, peace at the job. Everything goes well. I have a, a corner office. I get my own cubicle. I got my own computer now. I work in quietness. I can lock the door. I got a title on it, on my door that says how important I am. And I am happy. I am at peace. Everything is going so swimmingly. This is the abundant life. Is that the life that Jesus promised? A life of happiness? If you think that's what the abundant life is, you will spend your life chasing after the end of that rainbow. Because I'll tell you something, just about the time you put out all the fires at home, they're going to break out at work, and you're going to go to work, and you're going to put out all the fires there, and the dust is going to settle, and it's going to break out in your neighborhood. And you're going to get all the fires put out in your neighborhood, and then it's going to break out at church. And just about the time the things you settled down at church, guess what? Round two at home. You're going to chase that mirage for the rest of your life. It'll never happen. And there will always be things outside of your control that will squelch your happiness and take it away from you. No, no, if the abundant life is a life of happiness, then it is dependent upon my pursuit of things that make me happy. That can't possibly be it. Some people say that the abundant life is a, lo- is a long life. It's, it's length of days. It's just a long, long life. He had life abundant. He, he lived to be 90. Well, let me ask you a question. When does the, if that's your view of the abundant life, then when does that life begin? Does it begin after 40, 41, 45, 50, 65, 70, 80, 90? When do I get the abundant life? He's saying that if I'm only 20, 25, and haven't lived that long, that I can't enjoy the abundant life? Would you be willing to suggest that a God-hating pagan who lives to be 100 years old has enjoyed the abundant life, but a God-worshiping, Christ-loving, Christ-serving servant of God who dies at the age of 25 on the mission field never got to enjoy the abundant life because he didn't live a long life? Some people say that the abundant life is a life that is rich in experiences and accomplishments. That if I have had all of the experiences, I've traveled all over the world, I've seen the Eiffel Tower and the Grand Canyon, I have, I have owned a business, I have worked in a business, I have sold my business, I have run for office, I have been elected, I have uh, worked in a, in a, in a charity, I have received this award from PTA and this award from the Kiwanis, and when I get to my funeral, there is gonna be a whole wall dedicated with all the accomplishments and the achievements. I have lived an abundant life. I have, I have achieved the abundant life that Jesus came to offer in John chapter 10. Is that your view of the abundant life? Let me tell you something. Here's the key. If what you think the abundant life is, if it is something that can be enjoyed and is enjoyed by a rank unbeliever, you have missed what the abundant life is. Who did Jesus give the abundant life to? His sheep. Whatever you think abundant life is, if it is something that an unbeliever can enjoy, apart from Christ, your idea of an abundant life is wrong, entirely wrong. It is none of this nonsense that I have just described to you. The abundant life is so much better than that. The word abundant means exceeding, overflowing, superfluous, going beyond what is necessary. This is just Jesus' way of describing the the salvation, eternal life, that is given not to some, but to all his sheep. All of us enjoy the abundant life, whether you're poor or rich. If you have spiritual life in Christ, you have an abundant life. Whether you walk or never walk in your life, you have abundant life if it's in Christ. Whether you are mentally handicapped and you are trusting Christ or, or mentally alert enough to make the next scientific discovery, if you are in Christ and you enjoy eternal life, you both share the same life abundant. Because abundant life is not measured by anything in this world that we have or that we acquire or we attain or is given to us. Abundant life is eternal life. It's as if Jesus said this, I have come that my sheep may have life and the life that I'm giving them is abundant. It is never-ending. It goes on for eternity. It is God's life. It is divine life. It never wanes. It never, it never vanishes away. It is never diminished. It is never exhausted. You and I will live for all of eternity with this life, the life that we have now, and it will never come to an end. That is life abundant. It is living water bubbling up inside. It is, it is, it is life that results in my, in, in my salvation and in my eternal resurrection. The abundant life is more than what I need. You realize that too. To save you, all God had to do was to pay the price for your sin, forgive it, give you just enough righteousness to get you into heaven, and give you a tent to live in on a dirt floor for the rest of your life, for the rest of eternity. That's all God had to do. Actually didn't have to do that. That would be wrong to say that. But that would be, that would be what would be necessary to meet our basic spiritual needs. Do you realize what God has done beyond that? He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world has granted you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have been adopted into his family. You have been made his child. He loves you like he loves his only son. He has given you the impeccable, blameless, spotless, eternal, infinite, glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. He has put all of your sins away and has given you all of that righteousness. And he has given you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And he has justified you and declared you righteous in his court so you will never face his frown again. You will never face condemnation ever in your life because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He indwells you by His Spirit. He has given you spiritual gifts to serve other people so that you can see the grace of God manifested in you and through them as we serve one another. He has given to us the church to live in and to dwell in and spiritual leaders and the ability to love one another. He has changed our nature and our heart. He has secured our salvation through the death of His Son. And then on top of all of that, we get these rewards that will last for all of eternity and they will never vanish and they will never fade away. And moth will not corrupt them, and nobody can break in and steal them. There are eternal rewards, not for things that I have done for Him, but things that He has enabled by His grace me to do through Him, and then He rewards me for them. And then I get to be in the presence of the blessed triune God for all of eternity, and to bask in that joy, and to delight in Him, and to have every desire, every holy desire that I have in heaven, because I will not have any impure desires. Every desire that I have in heaven will be to glorify God, and every desire that I have every longing that I have will be met to the fullest degree possible in a new heavens, in a new earth, in glorified bodies for all of eternity. That's abundant life. Now you say, but Jim, Jim, you don't understand. I am old and decrepit and my knees hurt and my ankles hurt and I can hardly walk in the mornings. You have abundant life. I'm in chronic pain. You have abundant life, but I'm just a, I'm just a housewife. I don't have any accomplishments or achievements in the eyes of the world. I've never earned a paycheck in my life. You have abundant life. You realize what you have? You know, it's not something you have to work for. It's not something you have to enter into. It's not another experience you have to have. It's not, there's not some secret key to knowledge. You know what the abundant life is? If you are in Christ, it is what you have. What is it that allows a man like Paul to write his most joyous letter from a jail? Abundant life. What is it that allows Paul to say, even though people preach the gospel to do me harm, I rejoice in that. That's abundant life. How can Peter and John leave the presence of Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer a beating for the name of Christ? That's abundant life. What is it that allows a man to rejoice in the presence of his captors, to pray for his persecutors, to endure physical suffering, to count it all joy when he faces various trials and temptations. What is it that allows him to consider the momentary and light afflictions of this life, to be working for him in exceeding weight of glory, and to live with his mind and his heart set on things above, and to face death and look it squarely in the eye without flinching and without fear, and say, I am ready to go to the presence of Christ. You know what that is? It's abundant life. That is the reality and the present reality of, For everybody who is in Christ, not some of the sheep and not something that as sheep we eventually acquire. When I got saved that night, that instant, I was given life abundantly. Even if I never accomplished anything in this world, and even if I had died the next day, having gained nothing else in this world, I would have had the abundant life described in John 10. Do you get it? What is the abundant life? He has taken you from the domain of darkness and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his son. He has taken you out of death and you have passed from death into life. And the life that you enjoy, the salvation that you enjoy is infinite. It is full. It is free. And because of the death of Christ and giving his life for the sheep, it will never, ever, ever come to an end. It cannot. And nobody can take it away from you because you are in Christ's hand as he is in the Father's hand. And the Father is greater than Christ even. And nobody can take that eternal life from you. That is abundant life. And so we with Paul say, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are so glorious and good, so glorious and good to Your people. And even the brief time that we have had here to think upon these things and to consider these things are are not adequate to even give thought to what You have given to Your people in Your Son. Thank You for a Shepherd again who has died for His sheep and has given us life, and not just a life that we eke out here and into eternity but a life abundant, full, and free. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration, and worthy of our thanks, and we give it to you this morning. In the name of your blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.